Welcome to a Black Man Sketch, a Ujama podcast. This is episode 17. Today we have a very special guest on our fourth show of a four-part series commemorating black history and culture, Judge Stevenson. It is an honor to have you on the show, Judge. Thank you. My pleasure, Odie. I appreciate it, sir. You know, um, your name is really synonymous uh, in this community. You've been a very civic and community man, uh, jurist since you've uh, been in the Twin Cities. And uh, I think a lot of people know you currently for your work with Restore the Circles or your men's group. But um, I'd like the audience to know also that you are a recipient of one of your gentlemen's first Legends Award. And that was done by your innovation that, that's been done since you since you became a judge, Judge. Um, I would just like for the record to show that um, I would like to show your role establishing the John School program. This was a program that was aimed to reduce prostitution-related crimes, and I think it was kind of a unique program where the defendants would pay the fine, and you used that to assist prostitutes remaining out of this life in prostitution to assist in finding stable housing. So the the successful John School um, also... um, the St. Paul Community Court, which was a more program to handle cases involving quality of life and neighborhood nuisance offenses that completed community services. Uh, we can't forget the community prosecutor program as well, and that was aimed to focus on troubled neighborhoods like Frogtown Summer University in St. Paul and to improve community police relationships. So again, uh, your your time on the bench, you have been able to use your position to focus on community and how we can lift our black community. And I just can't praise you enough for that, Judge. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was uh, you know, it, about my, uh, I'd say maybe a year and a half or two years into the job, uh, you know, being on the bench, things started to get to me because I, I saw so many people of color, primarily black folks, coming through my courtroom doing the same old stupid stuff, you know, yes. not, not abiding by the conditions of probation, going out committing new crimes. And I'm not talking about serious crimes. I'm talking about just nuisance stuff. And, you know, th- th- there weren't a lot of, op- it felt like there weren't a lot of options. You know, it was, you know, put them on probation. And if they didn't take care of business on probation, the state was asking that they'd be locked up. Yes. And uh, it started to get to me. Um, and I just decided, you know, I got to do something different. Well, the first thing I thought was, man, why did I take this job? <laughs> why did I go for this? Yeah. Um, but then I, I just decided I got to do something different. We, we need to be doing something better to address, you know, the needs of the community and the folks who appear before us. Yes. And that really got me thinking about different things that I could do. And so a lot of those programs weren't things that I created. I just happened to hear that they were looking at doing it, and I jumped in, and you know, mm-hmm. to some degree, took a leadership role. But uh, you know, it, it was almost like self-preservation. I got to do something, do otherwise, yes. I got to quit. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's been always been a very effective program. Let's talk a moment about the one that's been ongoing, probably most that's most visible with this community, and that's the men's group, uh, a diversion mm-hmm. program, or a way to, to get people re-energized about themselves and to give back. Uh, how has COVID-19 impacted this program since so much transformation and restorative is based on bringing black men together to share their stories in a brotherhood? Yeah, uh, it's been, it's really, 
have been painful because um, with the restrictions on gathering, you know, groups getting together, um, it's just we didn't feel it was safe to have, you know, between 20 and 40 guys sitting down and meeting with us. And and that generally that's the number anywhere from 20 to 40 guys will show up at a group. Yes. And uh, so we back in June, we said, you know, they, they put a moratorium on jury trials. So let's, uh, let's kind of put a, a moratorium on the group for just a little while. And maybe mm-hmm. things would be better, you know, in July or August. Yes. Well, in August, uh, things were a little bit better. And so we started doing, um, we figured out how to do Zoom and get mm-hmm. the word out to a lot of the guys that we were, that the group was meeting via Zoom. And mm-hmm. we started doing that, but it was, it, that's very difficult because you got a lot of guys who want to talk, who have things to say, and uh, Zoom isn't the most conducive platform for a bunch of people who who want to be talking and arguing sometimes and getting their points in, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, after we did that for a couple of months, things loosened up even further. And so in September, I believe it was, we started meeting again and social distancing and that, that was good. We we got back into the groove, but then as you know, in November and December, they put a moratorium on jury trials again. And, you know, we saw the uptick in cases. And so we, uh, we just said, let's just take a break from it. Mm -hmm. Let's just, you know, a lot of the guys, um, don't have uh, access to, to zoom. You know, they don't know how to do it or, or they're, they're so transient that, you know, some of them don't have cell phones or regular cell phone availability. Yes. Yes. So what we're hoping now, so, so we haven't met since November. Mm-hmm. Since, uh, I think right after Thanksgiving. Um, the hope is that in March, things will be such that we can start meeting again. And if, if, if we can't meet in person, then we'll figure out how to do it by Zoom. Yes, absolutely. One, one significant thing, though, is that for the first time, uh, our probation department, Ramsey County Community Corrections, really stepped up. And they actually rented space for us at Dunning Rec Center over by St. Paul Central High School. Yes. And, and there's a, it's a big room, so we can easily accommodate 40 people. Um, the corrections department uh, gave us a budget so we could feed the guys when they come to group meetings. And uh, it, it was awesome. But then that's when the uptick happened and we had to you know, take a break again. So I'm hoping next month we'll get started again one way or the other. That would be super because I know there's individuals still calling, searching for this need. It was very effective. Just mm-hmm. you mentioned uh, Ramsey County. Could you talk a little bit about uh, this kind of aggressiveness or, or maybe from your perspective, how we are evolving out of that old model of um, of being uh, a surveillance that um, that a lot of people in the black community see um, see uh, the courts as well as probation as as to trail them, nail them, and jail them. As we mm-hmm. get into trying to reform this justice system, talk a little bit about the the court and working with um, probation and and the criminal justice system. Um, I noticed maybe 10 years ago that there was a change in the attitude of our bench toward our corrections department. And that was, we felt that um, the corrections department wasn't doing 
all that we felt it should to help put people in the best position possible to be successful. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't that the corrections department didn't care. And actually, this, this is something that I, that uh, a battle I've been fighting. You know, I've been on the bench for 19 years. I've been fighting this battle for 17 of those mm-hmm. years. I felt that there were programs that we should be looking at and, and, and creating that would put folks in a better position to be successful. Yes. And one of the, one of the, the primary programs that I have been fighting for is an employment assistance program. Mm-hmm. Um, our, the, the last administration for our corrections department only gave lip service to the idea that that was important. It was not high on their list. Mm-hmm. We also felt that the program that the corrections department was using um, for their clients, um, they, they, they never evaluated the program. So they didn't know if the programs were actually doing any good. But money was going into those programs, and money had been going into those programs for decades. Mm-hmm. And we felt, many of us on the bench felt, you know what? you folks should be evaluating those programs and you should be looking at other programs, other alternatives to the programs you've been using. And because we should be doing a better job for these folks. Yes. And so we had a lot of retirement from our bench and a lot of new judges, young, younger judges, judges that had different ideas about what, how we should do things. And so then we started seeing movement in the direction that, that we thought um, corrections and our bench should go. Uh, and so it, it really got better. But there is still a long way to go. And it really takes um, leadership, mm-hmm. and it takes, in my opinion, the private sector to step up and help. Yes. So in our juvenile justice system, mm-hmm. back in 2006, we had we, we, we joined an initiative it's called Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative. Mm-hmm. And we got into that because there was a foundation, the Annie Casey Foundation, who did some research and convinced uh, courts and probation departments all across the country that what we were doing was harmful to kids. We were locking them up, mm-hmm. and we shouldn't be. And so they provided us with statistics to show that locking kids up is not good, that it doesn't make the community safer. It doesn't deter those kids from being involved in crime. But we had, but, but they spent a lot of time and money, um, the, the, this foundation, they spent a lot of time and money um, collecting those stats and educating people. And the, the, the facts were undeniable. Yes, we've been hurting kids for decades by locking them up when they didn't need to be locked up. And disproportionately, it was kids of color and primarily black boys that were bearing the brunt of all that. Yes. And so our bench decided we're in, and we started working, and we worked with our justice partners, cops, teachers, probation officers, prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, all of us, community members. And we made a huge difference. We made such a difference in the number of kids being uh, locked up that Boys Totem Town had to close down because they didn't have enough bodies. How, how about that? Yes. <laughs> and at the same time, we did not see juvenile crime go up. That's so amazing. it proved that that foundation was right. 
that this initiative was the right way to go and that we had been locking up kids for decades when they didn't need to be locked up. Now, that wasn't, you know, the, the, the answer to all the problems, but that was huge. Yes. And can, I mean, can you imagine a facility where kids are housed, uh, you know, juvenile offenders are housed, not having enough kids to keep it open? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know you're doing something right. <laughs> Absolutely. You can do that and crime doesn't go up. Wow, that's amazing. So what we need is something like that to happen in our adult criminal system. We need some private foundation to come in and say, you know what, let's take a look at the effectiveness of locking these people, these adults, up in the workhouse, mm-hmm. sending, them, sending them to prison. Let's see how effective that is. Yes. I'm willing to bet you that there hasn't been a serious study of that. And also, let's see how that dis- disproportionately impacts uh, folks of color. Yes. As you know, if it happened like that in the juvenile justice system, you know it's happening in the adult. Absolutely. And, and if I if I can go on just a minute, let me yes. let me tell you something that that happened that was really uh, eye opening. When we decided to do the juvenile detention alternatives initiative, we said before we do anything, the first thing we're going to do is take a look at decisions we make to see if the decisions we make contribute to a disproportionate um, uh, uh, racial impact on kids of color. Okay? Mm-hmm. So um, police officers, teachers, prosecutors, probation officers, defense attorneys, judges, we're all going to think when we're making decisions, if the decisions we make that impact these kids, uh, unfairly impact kids of color. We're just going to be looking to see if we're making decisions that unfairly impact kids of color. And so we did that for 90 days. At the time, we had over 100 kids in the work in the and uh, at Boys Totem Town per day, over 100. Mm. Within 90 days, we saw that number fall down to about 70. Wow. We didn't change a single policy. We didn't change a single rule or a single practice except let's take a look. Let's think about the decisions we make and think about whether they disproportionately impact kids of color. Yeah. So just just yes. by thinking about it, we yes. reduced that number. Yeah. And then the next thing we did, we came up with this evaluation tool um, to determine what kids needed to be held at least overnight so they could see a judge the next day. And we came up with this, this with this, it's kind of like a bail evaluation, except we don't have bail in juvenile court, but that's mm-hmm. what it was like. And mm-hmm. after we got that, after we created that, and we got everybody to agree on it and started using it, we reduced the number of population in our detention from about 70 down to about 35. And, and it, was, it was unbelievable, it but is. it was it's undeniable. And while we did that, there were people out in the community saying, yeah, well, you know, you're letting these kids out and they're out committing new crimes. And we even had police officers who would say, yeah, you know, we arrest these gangbangers and and before we get back on the beat, they're already out. So the judges let them out. That was bull. It was not happening. 92% of those kids who would otherwise have been held showed up to court like they were supposed to and did not commit another crime while their case was pending. 92%. 92%. So we knew what we were doing was right, and we knew what we had been doing was wrong. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's 
those kinds of things are the things we need to keep doing, but we really need the private sector to step up because our probation department has their, uh, has their budget cut every year. It's been cut every year for about the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. How, the heck, how the heck do you supervise people when your budget is cut all the time? Yes. And, and, and so you don't have programs. That's ridiculous. It is. Absolutely. It so is. those are things that we've been doing. I, I think we're on the right road, but we have a long way to go. And I'd really like to see us do something with the adult, the adult criminal system here in Ramsey County. Well, the evidence is irrefutable. I mean, this right. has been a very successful model. And I'm sure that uh, it's just a matter of time for softening hearts for this to transfer right into the adult world as well. You know, as I yep. hear you talk about this success, one thing that um, becomes to mind that it's always been this this ongoing battle that we have, especially for young black men that's connected with the criminal justice system, and that's extreme poverty. Uh, when we yep. talk about the need for employment opportunity that leads to housing discrimination, what's happening, what gives you hope, Judge, that that we can overcome these, this significant barrier, this this intersection that we're trying to navigate with some success, but it's still a tremendous struggle as we go on forward. Yeah, yeah. I think, though, you know, I think the system and our, our justice partners, we have an obligation to do better than we have. Been. I think the private sector has an obligation to step up and do things like, you know, don't discriminate against people because they have a criminal history. Yes. Because most of the folks who who get put on probation or who go to the workhouse, they are not the mad bomber rapist killer. Mm-hmm. They're people who messed up. And if we give them a chance and hold them accountable, the majority of the time, you know, the majority of those folks are going to do well. They're going to take care of business. And we need to give them those opportunities. Um, and so, But we also have to call on our community. We have to start impressing upon our folks. And I'm talking about black folks. We need yes. to impress upon black folks, our people, our expectation. We expect you to go to school and get that education. Yes. We expect you to behave while you're in school so you learn and you don't disrupt the classroom for other students. Yes. We expect you to get a job and support yourself. We expect you to wait to have kids until you can support them. Um, we expect you to obey the law. Mm-hmm. And I think we we don't do as good a job too often uh, with our kids, with, with, with young people in our community, impressing those expectations upon them. We expect you to graduate from high school. Yes. We expect you to get an education, a real education, while you're in school. Yes. And it's amazing, Otis, the number of kids, the number of young people that I see in court who know nothing about our history. Mm. I had a kid in court, uh, a young man, not a kid. He was in his early 20s. Um, and I don't remember what the charge was, but he was looking at a potential prison sentence, and he pled guilty. And I I said to him, I said, you know, when you come back to see me for sentencing, you know, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be asking you to show me, you know, that you can take care of business. Mm-hmm. I said, because you have an obligation to all of us that look just like you to be taking care of business. Because when you're out there doing knuckleheaded stuff, there are people who will assume that you represent all of us. They'll assume that all of us do that kind of stuff. I said, so so let me ask you a few questions. How far did you go in school? That I, I finished 11th grade, I started 12th grade, and I dropped out. Hmm. And this guy was intelligent. He was well-spoken. You could tell he was smart. 
Yes. I said, uh, while you're in school, did you learn anything about American history? He said, yeah, yeah, I did. I said, did you learn anything about Civil War? He goes, yeah, I think so. I said, do you know when the Civil War was fought? He said, uh, in the 1950s. I said, no, no, it wasn't in the 1950s. I said, do you know who Abraham Lincoln was? He said, yeah. I said, who was he? He said, he was the president. I said, do you know what he's most famous for? Mm -hmm. He said, no, I don't. Mm -hmm. I said, he freed the slaves, the Emancipation Proclamation. He goes, oh, okay. I said, do you know what the Civil War was fought about? He said, no. I said, do you know who fought in the Civil War? He said, no. I can't tell you how many people in my courtroom I've asked those questions, and they don't even know what the Civil War was fought about. Now, you can't blame that on parents necessarily because they aren't teaching that in school. And if you don't know where you come from, then you probably don't know where you're headed. And we don't spend enough time making sure that our young people get educated and know where they came from. And it's criminal yes. that that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. and, if, and if you can indulge me one more minute, please. let me tell you. Absolutely, please. I got to tell you something, and this is heartbreaking. I had a young man in court. He was a juvenile. He was 16 years old. And I think, Otis, I probably told you this before. Um, but whenever I tell people who haven't heard it, they're shocked. This young man uh, had a felony drug charge in juvenile court, and he pled guilty. And at the time of sentencing, the prosecutor asked that I send him to Red Wing for like six to nine months, something like that. It wasn't his first drug offense. His attorney said, Judge, you know, we're asking that you not send them, that you not lock them up. Uh, he grew up without a father, never knew his father, and it's always bothered him. And his girlfriend's about to have a baby, and he wants to make sure that he's in that child's life. So please don't lock him up. So I looked at him, and I said, so your girlfriend's about to have a baby, huh? And he said, yeah. And uh, I said, well, do you intend to have any more kids? And he said, no, four is enough. <laughs> he had, he was about to have his fourth. Oh, Two of his kids were two years old. Yeah. He had had another one um, like a, a year before, and now he's about to have four from, by, by uh, three different girls. Four kids by three different girls. He was 16. 16. Now, I mean, that's something else we need to be talking about because, you know, you got, you got these young people raising kids. That young man's mom was in my courtroom and she was in her 30s, early 30s. Yes. His grandmom was in my courtroom and she wasn't even 50 yet. There's something wrong with that. Yes, it's absolutely. generational. Yes. But that's what they grow up. Some of these kids grow up expecting that that's, you know, I mean, that's what life is. That's how it is. That's it, you know, and we need to change that. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So we, we just need to be talking. We need we need the private sector to step up. We need, you know, everybody, folks in the community stepping up and talking about, look, you're, you're sacrificing your future. I mean, we're in big trouble here. And, it's not, and you know, that's not just black kids. I mean, that's white kids, you know, Asian, Latino, everything, Native American. But we need to be talking. Absolutely. About our expectations. And I think that's the place where we have all been failing. Powerful message. Powerful remedy.
and also uh, a pathway to what we need to do. You know, Judge, I'm always great talking to you. I just love being around you. And I know prior to COVID, you were not only house your program at the house place, but those power hours, the time that you came to present to our young men. And today's podcast, I promise you, will be rebroadcast throughout Ujamaa because this is for the men that's the new arrivals. They need to hear this. They need to be reminded of their plight, their role to be good citizens, to take care of themselves, their families, and their community. So it's just been a, just a great, great conversation with you. Remind me just of um, it's how much I miss you, but your voice, and, and we're so thankful that you decided to go to the bench. Your innovation, your ability to to speak for the community that you live in and come from is just it's just it's, it's remarkable, sir. So I am so proud that uh, to know you and so proud to work with you. So I appreciate everything that you're doing. And, and the feeling is mutual. Uh, I, I really appreciate uh, you and Ujama having let us use your space all those years with the group, the men's group. Um, it, it really, it was really something. I mean, before we had been meeting in correct the, the probation office yes. offices, it was really nice to be out of there. <clears throat> and, you know, these guys feeling like this is a community space, which it was. Yes. And it, it really helped the group grow and being connected with Ujama, you know, having uh, some of your guys stopping in and, you know, oh. being referred to us. Absolutely. So I appreciate you too, man. I'd be glad when this, when we can fellowship in person again so we can resume. And I really appreciate not only your visibility, but, but bringing the other, your colleagues, the other judges to your drama. And that has really been something that stabilized our relationship. Mm-hmm. So we appreciate yeah. the, all the collateral benefits that you brought to us. We really appreciate that. Glad to do it. And we're looking forward, Let to, me- looking forward to inviting you back to the space with the Sounds new technology good, that we have. We'll do, sir. Again, thank you so much. I know we love you. We'll talk to you and be safe, my friend. All right. Thank you, Otis. Love you too, man. I miss you. I miss you too, man. All right. Take care. We want to thank you for tuning in to A Black Man's Sketch. You can listen to A Black Man's Sketch at ujamaplace.org, on iTunes, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook at A Black Man's Sketch.